Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisulu Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, three South Sudan rebel movements unite and the DRC government introduces free education in primary schools. In economics news, new report raises alarm bells about the rise in inequalities worldwide. And in sports news, Zambia calls off friendly match against South Africa over xenophobic attacks. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. Reports from Nigeria say an angry crowd of youths have attacked a South African franchise in the city of Lagos following violence against foreigners in South Africa. The protesters threw stones and destroyed property around a ShopRite store on Tuesday but were unable to gain access into the building. The violence followed five deaths in riots in Johannesburg where foreign-owned shops were targeted on Monday. Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari says he is sending a special envoy to meet with South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa to secure the safety of lives and property. This protester, Terence Chuku, explains their reaction. Even as of today, we got news from South Africa that Nigerians have been killed as we speak, and these reports are not false, and people's buildings and properties are being bought down as we speak. So we have to come here when the whole incident ha- started happening, and we've been here. Police have been trying to take control of the place and try to also protect the property that belongs to the same people who have been killing us. Meanwhile, South Africa's police minister Becky Kailes met with the leaders and residents of Jepistan in Johannesburg following the violence and looting of foreign-owned shops in the past few days. Chief leader in Gauteng province Mpiwe Mshongo has committed to working with authorities in ending the violence. Kailes says is going to have another meeting with residents on Sunday. They are great that we meet on Sunday. We hope that uh, we will work uh, as as a law enforcement uh, agencies in prevention of any other thing that will be coming before Sunday. And Sunday we are working hard and we are hoping that we will be able to find a final solution. Sudan's Prime Minister has approved 14 members of his cabinet, the first to be appointed since the fall of long-time leader Omar al-Bashir in April. The nominations include Sudan's first female foreign minister and a former World Bank economist as its new finance minister. A member of the ruling Sovereign Council says Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok approved them along with 12 other new ministers. The government will lead a three-year transition to elections and a power-share deal between the military and civilian opposition. Local media says Hamdok is expected to announce the full cabinet in the next few days. Health authorities in Liberia have announced that there is an outbreak of Lassa fever, which they say has killed at least 21 people, including one healthcare worker since January this year. The Deputy Health Minister and Chief Medical Officer Francis Keta says more than 90 cases have been reported across the country, but 25, including the 21 deaths, have so far been confirmed. Loss of fevers, an animal-borne or zoonotic acute viral illness. It is endemic in parts of West Africa, including Sierra Leone, Liberia, Guinea and Nigeria. And finally, Hurricane Doreen is now headed for the east coast of the United States after remaining stationary in the Bahamas for several days, causing devastation. The National Hurricane Center has warned of life-threatening storm surges hitting Florida, Georgia. In the coming hours, the government in the Bahamas says it will take many months to repair the damage. Local journalist Clint Watson reports. The U.S. Coast Guard was in yesterday airlifting people out of Abaco to the capital 
hospital who needed medical attention. And they're going to be back in there again today. People through South Florida and, and, and Canada already coordinating relief efforts to bring planes and helicopters with relief efforts. So it's going to be a unified effort that's needed worldwide to be able to help the many people that are in need. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African time. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. South Africa's Defense Minister Nosivue Mapisa Ngakula says the violence and looting of shops was aimed at tarnishing South Africa's image and undermining the authority of the state. Mapisa Ngakula, while speaking in an exclusive interview with the SABC News, her comments follow widespread looting of shops across Gauteng province. The looting started in the capital, Pretoria, last week before spreading to the city of Johannesburg. Ditaba Tzotezi reports. Residents of Alexandra, north of Johannesburg, woke up to incidents of looting on Tuesday morning. This follows a similar incident which started in GP's town on Sunday before spreading to Malvern. Tembiza, Captain Park and the Johannesburg CBD on Monday. More than 100 suspects have been arrested. Mohamed Moshi's three shops in Alexandra were also looted on Monday. He says that this is a big financial loss. Everything. Ben, when he finished here, when he takes that and after he's Ben. When he takes after Ben. They one shop, the side one shop, and here. Three shops. I sell him one in the supermarket. One is electronics, one is uh, clothing. Supermarket is maybe three million. I don't know now I, I, what I do. I also do know. I, I also cannot talk in. Houghton Premier David Makura visited Alexandra and appealed for calm. We are calling for calm and nobody should take the law into their own hands. These are very well organized criminal syndicates because you can see the kind of uh, uh, stuff they use to break down, to break into these uh, shops. I want to repeat, this cannot be justified by unemployment or people who are unhappy. This can't be justified. We are a self-respecting democracy. Defense Minister Mapisa Ngakula says there is a need to improve intelligence gathering. All that is required is for the security forces to be better organized, well organized, see the signs in good time. When these sorts of things are going to happen, they are early warning signals. Our intelligence services have had their own challenges. However, you are also aware that there's new leadership. Police are still monitoring various hotspots in the province. I'm in Johannesburg. The Nigerian government has summoned South Africa's High Commissioner over recent attacks on its citizens. The move follows reports of vandalism and shoplifting involving property and businesses owned by foreign nationals, mainly Nigerians, living in Johannesburg and other major South African cities. A correspondent in Nigeria, Phil Ihaza, has more. According to the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Geoffrey Onyema, the Nigerian government is demanding an immediate halt to the ongoing attacks on its citizens. At a Tuesday meeting in Abuja with South Africa's High Commissioner to Nigeria, Bobby Monroe, Mr Onyema stated that if the measures discussed are put in place, there will be a strong chance the crisis can be resolved. However, Mr Monroe denied reports of xenophobic attacks on Nigerians and other foreign nationals in his country. Instead, describing them as sporadic acts of violence, adding that businesses belonging to other South Africans were also affected. 
Xenophobic attacks on Nigerians living in South Africa have been rife for about a decade now, and according to the Nigerians in Diaspora Commission, at least 88 Nigerians have been killed in attacks in South Africa since 2016. There has also been retaliatory threats by various Nigerian youth organizations to clamp down on South African businesses operating in Nigeria. But the Nigerian government has called for calm and stated that there will be definite measures taken to end the spate of killings in South Africa. Meanwhile, Nigeria's President Muhammadu Buhari has sent a special envoy to South Africa following the looting in Johannesburg. Mr. Buhari is also scheduled to meet with South Africa's President later in October to further discuss ways of ending the tensions between two of Africa's economic giants. Phil Ihaza, SABC News, Abuja. British charity organization Oxfam focusing on poverty alleviation says in the report it is impressed with South Africa's commitments to reducing inequalities. The report titled A Tale of Two Continents raises alarm bells about the rise in inequalities worldwide. The report has been released on the eve of the World Economic Forum on Africa starting in Cape Town today. Lula Mamatya reports. Oxfam's report paints a bleak picture of the gap between the rich and the poor on the continent. It warns that if the situation is not addressed, it will have dire consequences. The report indicates that the four most unequal countries in the world are in Africa. They are South Africa, Namibia, Swaziland and Nigeria. It further states that in Nigeria, an estimated 10 million children are out of school, although the West African country boasts the largest economy in Africa. The organization's representative, Dr. Fatima Denton, says South Africa is making progress in addressing these inequalities by spending big on education, health, social grants, and the implementation of the minimum wage. But the most impressive factor we see for South Africa is tax progressivity. It's actually top in Africa in terms of placing the burden of taxation on the rich and reducing it on the poor. It's, it has the best, the most progressive tax regime. So we see South Africa actually as a country that's one of the most unequal in the world but it's also one of the best performers in terms of reducing inequality. It's putting in place the right policies, but it will take it longer because of the legacy of apartheid. Dr. Denton highlights the gap between the haves and have-nots on the continent. And start. Africa's three richest men, they are men, they have more wealth than the bottom 50% of the population of Africa, 650 million Africans. Three men alone, their wealth is more than what 650 million Africans at the bottom own. There's something unjust about that. Sometimes we Oxfam, we are accused of being jealous, but it's not that we are jealous is that it is problematic. That level of inequality will always be there in society, but this kind of extreme inequality, it puts a break on all the efforts the world is making towards eradicating poverty. President Cyril Ramaphosa will lead the country's delegation to the WEF. It will be attended by heads of state and government from the continent and the world. Business and global leaders of civil society will also attend. The president will, among other things, position the country as a destination of choice. Lula Mamaja in Cape Town. South Africa has avoided a recession. The country's gross domestic product grew 3.1% in the second quarter of 2019. The first quarter GDP numbers recorded a negative 3.2%. Economists had expected GDP numbers to improve slightly in the second quarter. GDP data released by StatsSA showed that mining, manufacturing, finance and real estate showed positive growth, while agriculture, forestry and fishery continued to shrink. Amina Akram reports. 
Some good news for the country as GDP increased by 3.1% in the second quarter of 2019. Statistics South Africa's data showed that some industries had fared slightly better than they did in the first quarter of this year. Economists had predicted slightly better GDP numbers compared to quarter one, where the country had experienced its worst load shedding since the 2008 electricity crisis, including a marked slowdown in global economic activity. The mining and quarrying industries increased by almost 15%, contributing 1.0 percentage points to GDP growth. Michael Manamela is Chief Director, National Accounts at Statsese. And basically, uh, your mining sector had a significant contribution. It was up 14.4%. Uh, and we see growth uh, in the mining sector coming from your coal, uh, platinum, as well as, as the uh, manganese coal and iron coal. And then thirdly, there was an increase in, in trade services, which was largely driven by, uh, uh, by locally, where we saw that the trade, wholesale, as well as the trade of motorbikes was up uh, in the second quarter. Meanwhile, finance, real estate and business services increased by 4.1% in the second quarter. The trade, catering and accommodation industries also showed growth. In contrast, the agriculture, forestry, fishing and construction industries decreased by 4.2% and 1.6% respectively. The markets have welcomed the improved GDP numbers, but economists warn of a negative economic outlook if investment and business confidence levels remain low. That report by Amina Akram. NGOs in South Africa's Western Cape province have called for an urgent national plan to address gender-based violence. The outcry follows the rape and murder of 19-year-old University of Cape Town student Uyinene Mkwetiana. Her body was found in Kailija Township last Monday. Tandiswa Mao has more. Outreach South Africans have taken to social media and thousands have signed online petitions to voice their disgust at the continued violence against women in South Africa. The first year, a city student was brutally attacked inside a post office close to a university residence and just across the road from the police station. The state alleges that a post office employee has confessed to a murder and also pointed out the place in Kailicha where he hid her body. Gadija Abbas of the Songa Gender Justice has decried the low conviction rate of perpetrators of gender-based violence. The statistics on gender-based violence is that it's five times the global rate in South Africa. That puts South African rates above the norm. Our conviction rates for rape is for between 4% and 8%, which actually points to a deeper problem of gender-based violence. Uinene is among a number of young women who have been brutally murdered in Cape Town in recent weeks. Last week, 19-year-old UWC student Jessie Hess and her 85-year-old grandfather were found murdered in their home in Paro. It's alleged she was raped before she was killed. The half-naked and beaten body of 14-year-old Janika Malo was found in her grandmother's backyard in Haynes Park. Lynette Falskang's mutilated body was found in black bags in her apartment last month. The body of 30-year-old Megan Krima was found buried in a Philippine mine in early August. NGOs say the attacks on women and children in South Africa is a crisis which needs urgent intervention. Sisonga Gender Justice Sipoka Zijani explains. So at the moment, our government does not have a co-state coordinated plan around ad- addressing gender-based violence. Uh, gender-based violence in the country at the moment is not an emergency, it's not a crisis. So we need our government or our president to look at it as a crisis, to take it as a crisis, to take it as an emergency. Community activist Nikki Wejendu says they are planning mass protests against gender-based violence. Unene's um, saga has caught me, you know, at my lowest moment because I'm also a mother, I've got sisters and I'm also my daughter myself. So walking in the streets, you do not know that you might be the next target. The University of Cape Town has declared Wednesday a day of mourning and activism against gender-based violence. I'm Tandi in Cape Town. Two members of an international NGO of public figures, the elders, say South Africa cannot afford to abandon the National Health Insurance Fund. Gro Hallam 
Brundtland, the former Prime Minister of Norway and former President of Chile, Ricardo Lagos, addressed MPs during a joint meeting of health committees on the importance of universal health care. The Elders was founded by late President Nelson Mandela as an initiative to get global leaders together to work for peace, justice and human rights. Both Grandland and Lagos have told MPs that none of the country's problems, even corruption, should stand in the way of implementing NHI. Zaline Merrington has more. One of the most common criticisms against the NHI during the joint meeting was the issue of corruption. EFF MP Naledi Chirwa says it is a major deterrent. We have a problem with corruption. Uh, most of the things or the agendas and the applications and objectives would have trickled down to the ground, except we have public servants at the helm of delivering uh, deliverables and service delivery to our people who still, they still, and there is no accountability mechanism that, is, that can be exploited uh, efficiently to hold people accountable. The former Prime Minister of Norway, Gro Harlem Brentland, says universal health care is so critical that this concern should not be used to prevent the implementation of the NHI. We know that this is, in many countries, a problem. Around the world, you're not alone, but I think you have a bigger problem than many other countries. So we are then talking not about NHI, but we are talking broadly about the way the country works. This cannot be a reason not to make NHI. And it has to be done, as you said, by accountability systems, by your legal system, uh, by the way things are made transparent and account, and then you have accountability mechanisms. The Minister of Health, Zuelim Kize, has acknowledged that the department is aware of the problems it faces. When the members raise those issues, they are actually raising issues that we have prioritized as a basis on which we are going to be uh, you know, instituting the health reforms to improve the health services. It's got to be uh, sorting out the issues of staffing, quality of health care, uh, infrastructure, supply of medicine, and the work ethic within uh, you know, the, the, the uh, civil service. The South African Broadcasting Corporation CEO Matot Mkakwe says he believes that himself and two other executives are standing in the way of the bailout. Mkakwe was testifying at the State Capture Commission in Johannesburg on Tuesday. Mkakwe told the Commission Chair, Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo, that every month he has to convince someone from the executive not to resign. Nomalizo Mandel reports. The SABC CEO, Madoda Mkakwe, has expressed frustration regarding the public broadcaster's failure to secure the 3.2 billion rand bailout that it has been asking for from government since September 2017. He says he believes that the SABC is being held to ransom. I feel, and that's how the three executives feel, and by the way, that's one of the reasons why we lost a key member of the executive team, the uh, acting COO. We feel as the team we are standing in the way of this bailout. And uh, I do not know what will happen after this. But the, f- the, the truth of the matter is that we cannot continue the way things are. In the interest of the SAPC, certain tough decisions need to be taken. Mkakwe also lamented the regulations that continue to militate against the SAPC's financial recovery. He cited the burden of unfunded mandates placed on the SAPC to broadcast sports events of national interest. We did a projection in the next three years the public mandate, unfunded public mandate, is going to cost SAPC 6.8 billion. So essentially, we are expected to broadcast all of this without any financial support. That's one. But the second point is that we, we also get to a stage where we ask ourselves, these unfunded mandates, if they are so critical, why is it then that there is no portion of funding allocated in order to help us. Meanwhile, 
SABC head of news Patiso Mahopeni in her testimony unsurprisingly described a newsroom which had fallen into serious decay. Mahopeni, who was appointed not long after former SABC COO Tlaudu Mutsuaneng, who had taken responsibility for the editorial functions of the newsroom, was fired from the public broadcaster. Besides a fail of leadership, she described a newsroom with no clear reporting lines. You are sitting there as a producer and then comes a call. Ordinarily, calls that go to the control room are calls within the system in the newsroom. It's either the person who's sitting um, in the newsroom who's telling you that there's an update on a script or something else has been added to the bulletin. But these would be calls from external parties telling the producers not to put certain content on air or to change stories that are currently running. The last person on the stand was the SABC's chief financial officer, Yolande Falbillion, who testified that the Gupta-owned New Age did not pay the SABC for the TNA breakfast shows. Hearing the testimony, Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo questioned how the country's state-owned enterprises had come to this. Parliament, which has a constitutional obligation of oversight that will make sure that it exercises its oversight obligations, properly and we in due course one will have to look at has it over exercised that obligation properly over the past number of years if it did why are we where we are what about the political heads political leaders of these SOEs over the years have they done their job properly where did things really go wrong the hearings continue on Wednesday that report by Numalizo Mandela in Johannesburg. Former South Africa's President Jacob Zuma says he hopes the death of controversial Busasa CEO Gavin Watson is not part of a plan to remove people associated with him. Zuma addressed mourners at the funeral of Watson held at the Feather Market Hall in Port Elizabeth. 71-year-old Watson died in a car crash en route to Oartambo International Airport in Johannesburg last week. Mkebisi Nkrina reports. Business people, those from the sport fraternity and politicians, including Eastern Cape Premier Oscar Mabuyanem and former President Jacob Zuma, some of the people who attended the funeral of Gavin Watson. His death shocked everyone as he died a day before he appeared in a SARS tax inquiry in Johannesburg. Watson made headlines after Bosasa former COO Angelo Agrizin implicated him at the State Capture Commission. Agrizin accused Watson of paying bribes to politicians in exchange for tenders. Addressing mourners, Zuma was also accused by Agrizin of receiving bribes from Watson. Says when the family told him that that story, he felt there were too many gaps. He says there's a plan to remove those associated with him. There are comrades I would not want to count who have left us very mysteriously. And I hope Comrade Gavin is not be counted among those that were cleverly removed from the scene. And I know that uh, <clears throat> Comrade Gavin has died at a point when <clears throat> his name has been raised. And indeed, as has been formed, he has been preparing to go to the commission to respond to a number of allegations that have been made against him so that he could clear some of the matters that needed to be cleared. His son, Rod Watson, was giving a tribute. He described his father as a loving person who loved shoes. Dad was a remarkable man who was blessed with living an anointed and fruitful life. He would naturally, people would naturally gravitate towards his positive energy and his love was contagious. Dad had the natural ability to inspire and motivate people just by being present and waking up every day vibrating, full of kindness. Chairman of African Global Operations, formerly known as Bosasam, Joe Kumetem, says Watson believed in teamwork and empowering the youth. He says Watson believed in prayer and dismissed the allegations made by Agris in the State Capture Commission that Bosasa has become a cult with prayer meetings every morning. The fact that he led a lot of people into the Lord, people don't just take it as a joke, but he made it his passion. He used to invite people, and he didn't care whether how many people were there. He always said two or three agree, so shall it be. He didn't care. He never forced anybody to come in and do into those prayer meetings. Yet, if you look at it, people will vilify him for that, to make it as if, you know what, it's a cult for somebody to pray. We all know it's not. Watson lives behind his wife and three children. I'm Kabisinginam in Port Elizabeth.
Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa, a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. It's 7.30 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines reports from Nigeria say an angry group of youths have attacked a South African franchise in the city of Lagos following violence against foreigners in South Africa. Health authorities in Liberia have announced that there is an outbreak of loss of fever, which they say has killed at least 21 people, including one healthcare worker since January this year. And at least seven people are known to have died as Hurricane Doreen makes it way over the Bahamas, leaving devastation and flooding in its wake. Those are the stories making headlines. Turkish national Ednik Osman Elsek accused of defiling young girls on the Kenyan coast, now wants the Malindi Law Courts to stop hearing his case and that it be transferred to the Mombasa High Court. Elsek is a Turkish billionaire accused of defilement and aiding child prostitution between February and October 2018. Diana Wanyoni reports from Mombasa. Appearing before Chief Magistrate William Chepseba through his lawyer Daniel Wamota and Cliff Ombeta, the accused claimed that the case was unprocedurally transferred from the Shanzu Law Courts to Malindi. In his affidavits, he also stated that the court should send the matter to Mombasa High Court. He also stated that he has lost faith and confidence in the entire Malindi court and is apprehensive that he will not get a fair trial. The application comes days after Elsec wrote a complaint letter to the Judicial Service Commission, JSC, to protest the manner in which Chief Magistrate Julie Oseko was handling the matter. However, his lawyers have distanced themselves from the alleged letter to the JSC saying that they were not involved and only came to hear of them in the media. The applications that were made to file this matter in the Judicial Service Commission were never filed by the lawyers. We are not aware of it. It has been quoted in the media that uh, Mr. Wamosa and myself and uh, another advocate by the name Mokan had uh, filed an application that the, the magistrate to recuse herself through the Judicial Service Commission. We do not know about it. We only read it in the press and then we confronted our client about it. Ombeta says the transfer of the case from Shanzu to Malindi was unprocedurally wrong. For me specifically, I can say this, he said that he felt I was not going to support that application or I was not going to be in favor of that application to the Judicial Service Commission. He told me that in my face and which of course I thought was uh, a little bit uh, in bad taste because there is no way you can uh, file a matter at the Judicial Service Commission for a magistrate to recuse herself when she has already recused herself from the matter. If he felt that this matter just is not going to be done, we are actually in the process of now going to another court. That was Cliff Ombeta, one of the defense counsels for the accused Edinik Osman Elsek. The hearing of the application is scheduled for the 17th of October. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. The U.S. state of Florida and some neighboring states are bracing for the impact of Hurricane Dorian after it pummeled much of the Bahamas for the last 24 hours. Once a Category 5 storm, Dorian has since been downgraded to a Category 2, delivering sustained winds of above 180 kilometers an hour while moving at a snail's pace. Millions of people remain in the hurricane's path as it now begins to track closer to U- the U.S. mainland and up the east coast. Show in Bryce Peace reports. 
Scenes in the Bahamas will bring little comfort to those who find themselves in the path of the storm and of most concern has not just been the ferocity of its impact, but the slow pace at which it is moving. Darien has essentially been crawling at just over one kilometer per hour, with reports suggesting it literally stalled over the Bahamas, causing widespread devastation through a combination of deadly winds, bands of sweeping rain and coastal flooding, a surge in water as high as seven meters deep. Claire Nullis of the World Meteorological Organization. As with any hurricane, it's not just the winds, it's the water that proves so dangerous and so devastating. And this is what we've seen in, in the Bahamas. So storm surge, and we're talking about very low-lying islands here. The storm surge has been 5.5 uh, to 7 metres above the normal tide level. Um, it's, as I said, it's life-threatening. It's devastating. Uh, it's now weakened to the equivalent of a Category 3 hurricane. Uh, the winds are still devastating, the storm surge is still life-threatening, and the rainfall is still torrential. Dorian is responsible for at least five deaths in the Bahamas with roofs of homes blown off, their walls collapsed while floodwaters have inundated structures, a level of devastation that will remain unclear until the storm passes in its entirety as Prime Minister Hubert Minnis explains. The initial reports from Abaco is that the devastation is unprecedented and extensive. They are deeply worrying. The images and videos we are seeing are heartbreaking. Many homes, businesses and other buildings have been completely or partially destroyed. There is an extraordinary amount of flooding and damage to infrastructure. As many as 13,000 homes have been destroyed on the archipelago from a storm already estimated to be the second most powerful ever recorded in the Atlantic Ocean. We are in the midst of a historic tragedy in parts of our northern Bahamas. Our mission and focus now is search, rescue and recovery. I ask for your prayers for those in affected areas and for our first responders. The United Nations Secretary General earlier expressed his solidarity with the people of the Bahamas and promised support for government-led rescue and relief efforts. As millions now brace for its arrival in the United States, from Florida to North Carolina, with mandatory evacuations in force along vulnerable coastal areas, Listen to U.S. President Donald Trump. It's a, uh, one of the largest we've ever seen. Its effects will be felt hundreds of miles or more from the eye of the storm and long before it potentially makes landfall. It's going to go at hundreds of miles. We expect that much of the eastern seaboard will be ultimately impacted and some of it very, very severely. My administration is coordinating closely with state and local authorities. The National Hurricane Center believes this system will remain dangerously close to the Florida and southern states, but the eye of the storm is expected to remain offshore as the outer bands, which extend some 70 kilometers from the nucleus of the system, bring sweeping rains and winds to the states of Georgia and South Carolina by Wednesday. But the center has also warned that any slight deviation to the left of this track could bring the core of the hurricane over the coastline with devastating consequences. I'm Sherman Bryce Pease in New York. Just a reminder Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa, a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective.
स्पॉटलाइट अफ्रीका Three rebel movements in South Sudan have united with the express purpose of overthrowing the government of President Salva Kiir. The decision by the three movements to unite comes at a time when the countdown to the implementation of the peace agreement in the second week of November continues. James Shimangula reports. Prospects of a stable South Sudan have apparently diminished following the announcement by three rebel movements that they have united to fight President Salva Kiir's government. The announcement was made by Pagan Amum, one of the 11 former political detainees in South Sudan. Amum leads the newly formed Real South Sudan People's Liberation Movement. National Salvation Front is led by former Chief of South Sudan Army Paul Malong. Malong's former colleague in the Army, General Thomas Cyrilo, is the leader of South Sudan People's Liberation Movement. Amum, speaking from an undisclosed location in South Sudan, explains what he and two other rebel leaders agreed to do. we agree to use all means possible when it comes to means of a struggle so we will be having diplomatic mobilization of support to the cause of our people through that we will be mobilizing the solidarity of uh, of the international community the region the africa uh, to come to the support of the people of south sudan we will be uh, mobilizing to organize our people in the country first and foremost so that we pursue peaceful struggle including all forms of peaceful mass political action that will include protest civil disobedience and uprising amum briefly explains what the three rebel movements intend to achieve in the days to come we build a sustainable viable state in South Sudan we build a sustainable democracy in South Sudan in which the power will be in the hands of our people and uh, we will work to mobilize our people to bring an end the dictatorial kleptocratic regime that is destroying South Sudan we are coming together around a common minimum program and a common understanding of what we can do together we have agreed to work together and uh, there is no any contradiction that is the basis and that comes uh, very clearly in our declaration of uh, principles that we have adopted expounding on the unity of the three rebel movements pagan had this to say we are unifying our activity to pursue the realization of this vision to work together and united to bring about a new beginning and a new hope in a situation of desperation that south sudanese find themselves the purpose of our coming together is to work together and struggle to stop this war that has been raging on and to resolve the deep national crisis that south sudanese have been suffering from and moves south sudan away from this failed state this kleptocratic regime so that we build a state that will have the interests of the people of south sudan at the core and uh, center of all the policies and decision making of the government so that we can have a state that will be a servant to our people and this is how a citizen of south sudan summed up the war of liberation that the three movements have declared against the juba administration war of liberation push people to the war again johnston nyaba an expert on south sudan sees the collapse of the new peace agreement expected to be fully implemented in the second week of november the spln reunification process is now collapsed that was johnston nyaba an expert on South Sudan reporting for Channel Africa this is James Shimanyula
schools have opened for a new term in the Democratic Republic of Congo with free education being introduced in primary schools. The decision for learners to study for free in the state-owned schools was announced last month to allow more Congolese to access education. Januel Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. Both public and private schools opened on Monday for the 2019-2020 school term in the whole Democratic Republic of Congo's territory. The new term has started under the free-of-charge education for learners attending public schools after the government announced the last month all the education fees have been cancelled. Learners have resumed the class while most of observers are questioning the implementation of this free-of-charge education since it requires more funds. But indeed, President Felix Tshisekedi has ensured that this country has money for that. President Felix Tshisekedi. The DRC is able to get such funds and will make it. I know the decision is a bit difficult somehow, but this will be the final measure to be complete in some months. You know, we decided so while there was no government and budget, but that will be done. The decision implementation needs to bring in new school building to host the big number of learners coming from private schools. It needs the teachers' salaries to be improved as well, since the Democratic Republic of Congo's teachers are earning peanuts money. But indeed, we have found these teachers at work in some of the schools we have visited here in Kinshasa as they hope President Tisekedi's regime will have to deal with them differently from the previous regime. Among the schools we visited is the Miller Institute in the Sele Commune, where this teacher named Germain Machini accepted to talk to us. The education is, uh, I mean, uh, considered to be free of charge of parents here. So this is to mean that normally the very first day of the thing is normal today. Classrooms are plenty, uh, are full of pupils. That report by Jean-Noël Bamweze from Kinshasa. Our economics updates up next with Tabiso Lohoku. Good morning. The official program of the 2019 World Economic Forum on Africa kicks off this morning with the South African President Sir Ramaphosa addressing a Brand SA breakfast meeting in Cape Town. The pre-World Economic Forum breakfast gathering is an opportunity for Team South Africa to develop an integrated approach to the country's input into the WEF deliberations. Ntebu Mokobo reports. Economic Forum on Africa takes place under the theme Shaping Inclusive Growth and Shared Futures in the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And this morning, President Cyril Ramaphosa will meet with Team South Africa to develop and refine South Africa's input to this gathering. The team comprises a number of stakeholders in the South African society and economy and will participate in the World Economic Forum on Africa here in Cape Town from today until Friday. Earlier, President Ramaphosa said the three-day meeting will focus on promoting South Africa as an investment destination. Ndebu Mogobo for SAPC in Cape Town. The three-day event is expected to attract over 1,000 leaders from government, business, academia and civil society. The gathering will also be attended by 10 heads of state, including presidents of Zimbabwe, Uganda, Botswana and Ethiopia. Elzi Kanza is head of Africa at the World Economic Forum. The World Economic Forum meetings are very much about preparing uh, for the future. At the forum, we believe Africa has much to look forward to. One, uh, regional integration. Through the newly signed African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement, uh, we are looking forward to doubling interregional exports um, by up to 40% uh, come 2040. Emerging successes in the areas of the Fourth Industrial Revolution, and he'd like to highlight um, that through the Forum Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution in San Francisco, Africa is leading the charge on the civilian use of drones globally. Energy and Power Development Minister Fortune Chassi is talking tough on Zimbabwe Electricity Supply Authority Holdings Board appointment. 
as he seeks to undo previous cherry-picking of acquaintances by selecting a competent team to steer the ship. Barely a month after his appointment on the current portfolio, Chassis sacked the Power Utility Board, saying he wanted people who appreciate the urgency of the situation they are in. The pertinence of the Zessa Board is informed by the fact that the country is saddled with a debilitating power crisis that lasts up to 18 hours, hurting the economy. In a bid to help coordinate efforts against issuance, insurance fraud rather, and other related financial crimes, the Central Bank of Rwanda has created an anti-fraud forum bringing together firms and stakeholders in the sector. The forum, which had its first meeting in June this year, is aimed at strengthening preventative measures and curbing fraud, which has often seen the sector bleeding funds. Insurance fraud includes fictitious and intentionally inflated insurance claims and manipulation of facts at the time of application to lower premiums. The government of Tanzania has announced the possession of 15,738 hectares of sisal plantations from a private investor after the investor had failed to observe conditions for the development of the farms. Land, housing and Human Settlements Development Minister William Luvuki said the sisal plantations were located at Mkomazi in the coastal region of Tanga. The minister told a public rally in the Mayomboni area that the investor had abandoned the plantations, breaching conditions given to him when he acquired the bulk of the farms. The U.S. dollar is trading at 358.15 Nigerian Naira, 10.93 Botswana Pula, 102.57 Kenyan Shilling, and 39 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.17 Brazilian roll, 66.83 Russian ruble, 71.13 Indian rupee, 7.17 Chinese yuan, and 15.16 to the South African rand. 82 pence to the British pound, 91 cents to the euro, gold $1,544, platinum $961 pounds, brand crude oil $58.43 a barrel. From an African perspective, this remains your favorite channel. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update, Botswana shattered Banyana Banyana's hopes for Tokyo 2020 Olympics at Orlando Stadium south of Johannesburg last night. The visitors won the second leg with 3-2 on penalties after Lebuhang, Ramalepe, Mamello, Makhabane, and Rifilo Jane missed their shots. It was a tough game for both sides with Banyana having more chances to reach the back of the net, but failing to convert them. Banyana Banyana head coach Desri Ellis lamented the missing chances. When you have so many chances and you cannot score one, you know, the penalty shootout is always a lottery. Um, it's disappointing for all of us and we've always spoken in the past about um, chances that we need to take and once again it was too easy to miss though and we missed um, it's just not a, a good day for us at the moment the home girls were the favorites to go through at home considering them having reached the olympic games twice and recently played for the first time in the FIFA Women's World Cup. But it was not, not so against the Zebras as they kept Ellis' side under their control with goalkeeper Sidila Mebosolia making crucial saves. Ellis has more. Obviously, we will sit down first um, and have a look for the way forward. Um, that's the most important thing. But we also have to love the players. At the moment, they're all disappointed. Um, they gave everything that they could out there. So we have to love them as well. Um, because they just as disappointed. Definitely, you know, um, football is like that. You know, you have your ups and your downs, and uh, this is definitely a very down moment for us. But uh, we have to show the character. Um, we have to really um, take care of each other at this present moment, and we really have to look forward. We never took anything for granted. Uh, we really worked hard. 
um, in the days leading up to it. Um, we work hard on our finishing once again. We work hard on our combination play. We work hard on our defensive side. We work hard on everything. And today we created more chances than I can ever remember. Um, and it's disappointing that we didn't put one in the net. And, and that's the result of us being out at the moment. On to cricket news, Proteus all-rounder Venon Philander says he's looking forward to playing in front of the hard-to-please PPC Newlands crowd after being drafted to join the Cape Town Blitz for this year's second edition of the Mzansi Super League T20 tournament. The Western Province Cricket and Cape Cobra Stalwart says he's well aware of the expectations playing at your home ground brings to the fans. However, he adds that he's looking forward to helping the Blitz bring the cup home this time around. Yeah, I think it's always good being in uh, Cape Town and I think, you know, as we all know, Cape Town probably is the best crowds, uh, hard to please crowds, but uh, yeah, I think, you know, that's what we live for as a sportsman, you know, is the excitement and uh, the mere fact that we've got to go out and entertain. So yeah, really good to be in Cape Town and uh, yeah, hopefully we can you know, play good cricket and uh, yeah, entertain the crowds. Obviously, you know, being a local player in Cape Town, you know, there's a lot of expectation. Um, like I said, you know, the Cape Town crowd is probably one of the hardest to please. But uh, yeah, look, I think, you know, you can also use it to your to your advantage, you know, being at home, you know, get the crowd behind you. That's really going to spur us on. So yeah, really look to, you know, obviously partaking in the, in the MSL, to, you know, T20. And uh, yeah, like I said, hopefully we can get off to a good start and uh, bring the cup home this time around. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, Nigerian government summons South African ambassador over recent attacks and three South Sudan rebel movements unite. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutsura Magadza and Tutongobeni, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Uh, taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Lesejo with a song titled Kitsepilewen.
Chaba, 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 Chaba,